doing something around Breaking Bad where they were like offering up all this, you know, additional information for your iPad. Like it was the the last five seasons yeah, of the show that. that I mean, the last five episodes of the show that you should have been following really closely and they were offering something to sort of distract you from it. But it also didn't work well because I, for instance, had a stream Breaking Bad at the end, so yeah. I wouldn't get my episode to like the next morning yeah, or the next day or two. So that's st- I couldn't even go on the internet. I was, um, I, I was doing it all over Netflix and then I realized that I wasn't going to be able to do that for the last yeah. episodes. It just... I, I couldn't. I so, couldn't deal with it. Like I couldn't. I couldn't deal with waiting. Five the waiting. Months. So what? Did, right. So I ended up buying mine. On, I bought them through Amazon. I, t- I did one year. I did Amazon. One year I did iTunes. Yeah. Do you um? After 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 working at the FF, have you have you stopped um torrenting? To be perfectly honest, I never did. I okay. was the last um generation of. This is totally embarrassing. When I was an undergrad, I had dial up most of undergrad. So I was an undergrad, and a lot of the file sharing sites were really popular, but I had dial-up, and it was so freaking slow that I never got into it. And it's funny, because I'm one of the most voracious music fans I know. Yeah. But I also, the, the reason I think a lot of downloading songs, at least now, obviously, you can download much larger files, never worked for me, is I am a big believer in an, um, in an artist's decisions about how they order their records. Mm-hmm. You know how they order the tracks. So I've never been a fan of singles or just grabbing one song. Yeah, yeah, I I, I, I have the same experience. Um, I, I I like I like the idea of listening to albums, you know, as as kind of a, a full work of art. But the iPads completely ruined that for me. Um, I, I listen to everything on Shuffle now. Yeah, which... Shuffle's good. I listen to a lot of stuff on Shuffle. Also, Spotify's been great for me, and yeah. I have Sonos. So. Um, I have music on in the background at home all the time. So how I, I'm actually curious. Getting getting back to the, the torrenting thing, I'm, I'm wondering like how working here has impacted your kind of day to day computer life. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think I'm much more um, cognizant of using open source fixes for things, mm-hmm. um, efforts to stay outside of the so called walled garden. Yeah. Um, Although we were just talking about iPads. Yeah, and else. the truth is I'm totally in it. And, you know, you'll see around here that a lot of the, the folks who work at EFF make um, great effort to stay outside of the walled garden. But the truth is a lot of the attorneys are less successful. Um, you know, I came from a law firm before this. So there, you know, I had like every tech solution that law firms use, which is everything, you know, you'd be used to uh, in a typical professional context mm-hmm. um so you're used to kind of the, the ease that comes with that despite its negative side effects you were a you were an entertainment lawyer before? yeah i did was... cop well copyright and patent but I, okay. I did a lot of work on the you know the quote-unquote other side you were on the other side of things yeah so you were you were litigating i was litigating cases the truth is most of the, uh, the other side it's not so clear-cut you know it's not so yeah. black and white one side and the other the truth is that um when you end up doing litigation work, particularly in the copyright context, you do a lot of stuff that's um, defending or, or, you know, working with the artists. Um, a lot of times it's contracts with their managers or, mm-hmm. you know, other deals they've made. So it's not even in those cases the kinds of um, politically heated debates we sometimes have here. It's much more straight up um, legal disputes. And that's not, I mean, that's not, is that patent related? No, I did. I mean, at the law firm, I pretty much did half patent, half copyright. Yeah. 
Okay. Which is technically what I'm supposed to be doing here too. What is? But, but what is? I mean, how how are you working in patents in an in an entertainment context? Yeah. So, well, I, I guess the two things were separate. I did. Okay. I worked at a law firm that did both types of law, yeah. and I worked with both groups. Technically, I did you know intellectual property litigation, which at my old firm meant a lot of straight up patent work, and it also meant a lot of straight up entertainment traditional copyright work. Did you have that like? You know, that like network moment where you were like, oh, I'm on the wrong side of things. I need to switch. Um, I had many of them. Yeah. <laughs> and I actually love anything by Aaron Sorkin. So I. Okay. Um, yeah. Anything like that, too. You know, I definitely. There were a lot of moments. But the truth is, I worked with a lot of good people. Yeah. You know, and I would never want. And, and you're and you're defending artists. I you're mean, de- particularly that, when you're defending that's not really, artists. Oh my god! Not, you're not on the bad side of things if you're defending a creative type. Right? Oh, totally. Well, and you want. I wa- then wanted and still do want those people. You know, to have um, the ability to make a living, to do their art, to be able to get their their content out there, which is actually why I do what I do now. I just think that working on the side of an open internet is a more effective way to make that happen than, you know, working for a more, to defend a more traditional business model that surrounded these like kind of closed marketplaces. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you hear the argument a lot, though, that you're not, you know, that, that, that by, by fighting patents or at least overly broad patents that you're um not allowing people to make money off of their ideas right i mean isn't that the whole other side yeah i mean i think that that's a fair point when you start talking about the patent stuff but i think um that's an unfair slice of the question because i don't think that that's the intention of patents right so uh patents are in the constitution article one section eight says that uh congress may kind of grant these short-term monopolies uh for the progress of the useful arts and sciences Right. So that means to me. So you get to own that for. You get to own it if it's going to incentivize innovation. Yeah. Which is to say, um, think think about it. Let me take a step back. Think about it for a second in the context of pharmaceuticals, which I think is a lot more straightforward. Um, It's really expensive to develop a drug. You often have to build, Mm -hmm. you know, factories. You have to take it through rounds of testing at the FDA. You have to actually develop the, the chemical compounds or whatever. I'm not a chemist, but, you know, you can see. How these things take a lot of resources, but, but you know, I, I, I guess you could argue that it also takes a lot of resources to innovate in the tech space. As oh, well. totally. But but I guess my point is that when you start talking about pharmaceuticals, you can understand why um, our policymakers have decided to give a twenty-year monopoly mm-hmm. to incentivize that kind of innovation. I mean, literally, it can cost around a billion dollars to get a drug to market, and yeah. you could find out at the third round of testing that you don't get approval from the FDA. That isn't to say that it's easy to, to write software or that it's easy in the tech space to innovate these software type inventions. It is to say that it's not that. I, I, obviously, obviously you're, you're not a chemist, but <laughs> I'm, I'm wondering if, um, you know, if we're, t- we're talking about incentivizing innovation, if, if you're developing a drug, are you developing also the building blocks with which somebody else can develop a drug? I mean, are, are you are you pushing innovation in so that respect? You are, and that's an important piece, actually. And there's a separate body of law that kind of covers this stuff. It's called the Hatch-Waxman Act. Pharmaceuticals have some different things that allows for generics to do certain types of testing. There, We create um, our... our Congress has created certain um, different ways the law works around pharmaceuticals, around drugs, brands, and generics to ensure that we get access to both. Mm-hmm. Um, but the truth is, when you talk about incentivizing software innovations in particular, not hardware now, I'm talking about software, we've not seen any proof that anyone relies 
on software patents to get products out there. We've seen mm. proof that people use software patents to hold up competitors yeah. or to make a lot of money or whatever, but not to get innovation out there. So think for a second about Google, Facebook, Twitter. None of those companies originally relied on software patents to grow mm-hmm. their business model. They just didn't. Um, some of them have patents now. They all have a lot. But um, as a practical matter, that's not what grew their business, you know. Google search didn't come because they had this amazing software patent that they relied on to stop everyone else from using it. And they're not innovating for the sake of owning a patent to sell they're that patent. surely not. Correct. So, I mean, to go back to your original question now, which was this kind of thing about, don't you think someone who has a good idea should be able to get paid for it? Well, I think there are a lot of ways you can get paid for a good idea. You know, first of all, there's copyright protection. Second of all, there's trade secret. And third of all, and the best way to do it is just to grow a really good business, right? What we've seen is that patents are used to hold up competitors and to hold up innovation. Um, that that's the way the proof has gone in the recent history. Yeah, I mean they're they're literally using them to bring people to trade court. Totally. <laughs> to, to stop things to stop from coming, things coming from, in the country. From being, yeah, exactly. Yeah, from being crazy. imported into the country. I mean, think for a second about this podcasting patent which we recently just filed. Um, yeah, t- today you did or just so, last week. Okay. Just there, last there was week. some news that came out yeah. today, right? So there's I'll talk just a little bit about the story behind that patent. Yeah, please. Um and I think it gives you kind of a good framework for understanding somewhat relevant to what we're doing right now totally right we are personal audio owns this patent that sorry the dog we have a dog in here who's getting tangled in all the cords um personal audio owns this patent they claim it covers podcasting it's patent super old it's from the 90s Can, can you describe it well it really originally had to do with um i'm gonna come over here maybe so that she yeah i might just let her go in the other room all right that's better um oh there were treats under your chair. Yep. <laughs> that explains the problem. <laughs> anyway, Personal Audio owns this patent. It's had it since the 90s. It originally had to do with like sending cassette tapes in the mail, right? Which, as far as I know, was never actually a business model of any well, sort. So there you have it. So anyway, they got this patent. They think that it covers podcasting. This guy claims he invented podcasting in the you know the mid 90s and mm-hmm. before there were pods right <laughs> before the i mean before there were casts before there were casts yeah. before there were pods right fair enough so then, anyway he claims he invented it and he tried to commercialize it and there really was just no market and even assuming he's right right even assuming this guy actually did invent the idea of podcasting yeah. in the 90s which all proof points otherwise but let's just say for argument's sake he did he then sat on that patent yeah he didn't do anything. He didn't try and give other people the technology. He didn't try and commercialize the technology again. He just waited. What what is the what what's the um expiration date on a on a patent like that? So that one's got some funny it, it, patents generally last about 20 years. Okay. This it one sounds like it's been about 20 years. Yeah, right? this one only has a couple years left on it. Um So he's trying to get everything you can and now obviously there are tons of people podcasting some make more money than others but some actually do make some good money and he's sending tapes in the mail right sending their cassette tapes in the mail Mm -hmm. but the proverbial troll right the the term patent troll comes from somewhere there's a troll under the bridge who reaches up and extracts a toll there it is yep there's a dog work what are you what are you upset about i have a plan actually um to fix that but anyway so you know to get back to the, the podcasting patent troll that's that's the problem, that no one knew the patent existed. He wasn't doing anything yeah. with it. And now all of a sudden he claims that, that these people owe him money. But just to be clear, there is no way, no one can say to me with a straight face that any podcaster today is podcasting because this guy 
came up with this idea in the 90s. Yeah. You, you went to um, you went to a drawer and pulled out a really nice binder that you have. Yeah, this is this is the patent. This is the podcasting patent. I'm going to read you claim 31. Apparatus for disseminating a series of episodes represented by media files via the internet as said episodes become available, said apparatus comprising. And then there's a whole long half column, yeah. very dense. I will not bore all of your listeners with it, um, but I'll just read a little bit so you can get a flavor of the, sure. the legalese and the patent. Um, one or more communication interfaces connected to the internet for receiving requests received from remotely located client devices and for responding to each given one of said requests by downloading data file identified by a URL specified by said given one of said requests to the requesting client device. And that, that's I mean, that it. just, I, you know, as somebody who does read a fair amount of tech patents, that just sounds like a tech patent to me. It, well, and that's the problem with tech patents, yeah. right? I mean, they, they're virtually meaningless, and that's a huge part of the problem. No one can know what's out there. No one can understand what the rights are vis-a-vis uh, other patents, and it, it leads to a, a whole bunch of problems. Uh, so so if, I can, if I can parse it for a second, it's a, a method for disseminating episodic programs through the internet? Yeah, this guy claims that that's what he owns. I mean, it, sound, it sure sounds like, a, it sure sounds like <laughs> a podcast to me. And I mean, I think you distilled it pretty well, but you know... We don't think that he was the first one to do this. Yeah. And, you know, even more abstractly, aside from any legal challenge to the patent, we don't think that um, anything about what this guy did created podcasts to come to market any faster or slower. If anything, it slowed down the process because now people are afraid. So, so I mean, it sounds like it sounds like the, the approach on your end is kind of twofold, where one, you have to find some kind of immediate proof that this is not an appropriate patent, you know, that, that either somebody created it before him or there's some piece of language in there that means it doesn't actually apply to podcasting. And then the other broader part, which I think is probably most of your job, is just attempting to reform patent yeah, law in the United States. Yeah, I think that's a good point. So um, what we did with this one in particular is a very specific type of review at the patent office. You can request the patent office to take another look at the patent it already granted. Um, and there are only certain grounds on which you can currently do that this barking dog is actually embarrassing. <laughs> um, so anyway, what you can do in that instance is uh, you can claim that it was an obvious idea. Someone came up with it first. Yeah. Um, that's what we claimed here. Um, a podcaster individually could claim that he or she doesn't infringe, but that would only come up. We're, we filed our what's called a request for re-exam as a third party. I mean, that's not, and that's not a great way to go about it because... You know, in that case, every single person would have to go through and prove that they don't infringe, right? Well, so it's kind of a complicated thing. There are a lot of ways you can attack a patent. One is actually in litigation, in federal court. Let's say you're being sued for infringement. Let's say I'm a podcaster. I'm being sued for infringement. I'm in court. I can say to the court, number one, I don't infringe. And number two, the patent is invalid. Mm -hmm. And then all those issues are live in front of the judge. But somebody, you know, somebody like a, an Adam Carolla or somebody has to actually have the uh, the resources to take that to court. Correct. And that is incredibly rare. We are literally talking about millions and millions of dollars. Yeah. And I'm glad you brought that up because that really gets to the heart of, of the problem, which is that it's so expensive that even the threat of litigation, even if you have yeah. the best case ever, the threat of litigation is enough to, um, you know, to, to kind of 
get people just to take early settlements. This is probably what this person is hoping for in this case, right? Is to just make yeah, somebody decide and not go to court. I think that's right. I mean, that's what they usually are hoping. But in this case, it's particularly crazy. This guy went after um, really popular podcasters. Yeah. Comedians, like, yeah. who have pretty big soapboxes. I, I don't really understand. But Well, I, I, yeah. I mean, I, I understand from the standpoint of those are potentially people who have money to settle so it could be in their best interest to just settle but yeah. on the flip side obviously they've got the microphone so even i mean talking a lot of folks have money to settle but talking about people who have money to litigate is a whole different thing yeah literally millions of dollars yeah. on both sides um just to get to the end of the day and if if let's say you do fight back you've now spent years of your life in federal litigation which is horribly stressful a total pain in the ass um you know, crazy fees to lawyers, uh, time spent in deposition and doing other litigation activities when you're not actually doing your business. You're out a couple million dollars. And let's say you win. All you get to show for it is a piece of paper, essentially, that says you won. Maybe you invalidated the patent, but you don't get that money back. I mean, and, and you know, based on what I can tell from, from this company specifically, I, I, I don't know if they have the resources to go to court on their own end. Well, they have. They have Actually, they had another patent in the same, it's called the same family of patents, yeah. and they went to court with Apple. I see. Let me ask you where you are with all this then. Yeah, um, I think that's a good question. So we do a lot of work on this front, both, um, you know, in the courts, litigation, individual parties. Uh, making challenges at the patent office, but we've also been incredibly busy lately with policymakers, with what's going on on Capitol Hill, um, with the president even, who's come out um, against the patent trolls, use the word extortion to explain what they do. Um, it's really been amazing because just a couple of years ago, Congress passed the America Invents Act, which was supposed to be uh, one of the biggest changes to the patent law in you know more than half a century. But what's happened is... Um, you know, the patent trolls have gotten really bad. Why Why is this, and this is really in the past, I would say almost six months, maybe a year, why is this kind of the zeitgeist all of a sudden? Yeah. I'd like to tell you it's because I'm good at my job. Yeah. I don't think that's the case. I think the patent trolls have gotten, frankly, really shitty. Um, it used to be that the patent trolls targeted big tech companies, mm-hmm. Google's, Apple's of the world. And that wasn't good, but, you know, it doesn't doesn't make good TV, right? Yeah. Like Google and gets sued. Apple gets sued. it probably sued. didn't make a huge dent in their multi Right. I mean, not market. to say that that's okay, but yeah. it's not the kind of thing that gets the attention of members of Congress. Sure. Um, in the past year or so, patent trolls started going after, you know, quote unquote, little guys, after app developers, mm-hmm. after companies, people who, businesses who use scan to email technology. Why, um, why, why the shift? Or is there no clear explanation for that? Um, you know, I think... They just got slimier, and it's just, it's different people. It's someone who saw a business opportunity mm-hmm. and exploited it. So uh, I think there are a lot of people who've been successful uh, among us folks who try and do patent reform. But I think the people we can most thank for moving the ball are the patent trolls themselves. What what kind of reform have we actually seen? Yeah. So um, I guess well, there's one other thing I'll say yeah. first, if that's okay. I think there's. Um, a couple other things going on in the Hill politically that have moved the ball. Number one, it's one of the only things that uh, Congress people from both sides of the aisle seem to agree on. Like, this Congress can't pass anything, and they might be able to pass patent reform. Just that it stifles innovation. Yeah, and, like, yeah. Republicans and Democrats kind of agree, and so there's some momentum there, and there's momentum around nothing else. So we might be the the, ref- the, the legislation that falls through the cracks of the most dysfunctional Congress ever. <laughs> I'll take it. Um, I also think that... Um, you know, to some extent, we're in a post-SOPA world where 
the tech industry is really starting to get its footing um, in these larger policy debates. I think a lot of members of Congress are afraid to get on the wrong side of tech after yeah. what happened with SOPA and PIPA when, of course, you know, millions and millions and millions of people called Congress, emailed Congress, Senate switchboard went down. Um, I don't think we're going to have another SOPA moment with patent reform. I, I just I don't. Are they are they just savvier now or are they just better at waiting for things to, you know, kind of have like clear public opinion? You mean is who savvier? Uh, Congress. Um, I think that's a good question. I think there are a lot of people in Congress who are more um, who are more savvy, who yeah. do and Al Franken. For example. Yeah, who are. And I think that was going to happen no matter what. And that will only continue to happen as younger people go to Congress, as people who are. You know, digital natives end up Not working. Not younger, but you know, it just—it's skewing older now because it's better been around for a while. Right, longer, right, right, right. And one—I mean, think about who their staffers are. Yeah, their staffers are mostly in their twenties. These are kids who grew up online too. Um, but but ultimately, at least theoretically, it's the congressperson making that decision, right? Right. But as far as you know, the—I I think I guess what I would say about that, and I also think Barack Obama's presidential campaigns taught a lot about this too they were really um technology driven in a way we hadn't seen before it's that let's say you've got a staffer working for senator you know joe smith or whatever Mm. that staffer can go to senator Senator joe smith and say hey listen i don't (laughs) and say this is what's going on this is what i'm seeing online and i think before that didn't even happen like people didn't even raise the the Mm. issue to the members um or the members pay more attention. You know, tons of them have Twitter accounts. Have you ever looked at Chuck Grassley's Twitter account? If you haven't, everybody who's listening to this yeah. has got to go and check right. out Senator Chuck Grassley's Twitter account. I don't it's think amazing. it's a sign of a congressperson being tech savvy so much as being on the internet. Listen, I'm, it's fine. It's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, all this is to say that I kind of feel like there's been a perfect storm of events um, that have, have kind of raised this issue of patent trolls to the forefront i also would say okay so now your question was about what kind of reforms are we seeing yeah i'm gonna start by saying i think what we are seeing is good i don't think they go nearly far enough Mm -hmm. but congress um has a lot of power under the constitution but we all know lacks in political will so i think we're looking at band-aids is what i'm saying and that's better than nothing um i guess i guess let's start with this i mean should there continue to be patents for hardware and software innovation um so that's a really loaded question and yeah. first of all i wouldn't put hardware and software okay necessarily well, we could take the it, same we could take it as piecemeal yeah as i mean listen it. i think software patents are really bad if i could turn back the clock and start over yeah you know we'd never have had them they, they just shouldn't they, but they do and i live in this world yeah. where they exist and i'm trying my hardest with a lot of really good really smart people to get software patents out of the way of innovation and i'm trying to do it in a politically expedient way so if that means um that we're working in the courts to to kind of which is what we're doing right now we're also working in the courts to limit what can and can can and cannot be patented mm-hmm. but we're also working with congress on what they do have the political ability to do um they don't right now have the political ability for better or worse, even if I think they should, to take on this question of should we have software patents? It's just not there's no political legs there. Okay, I, huh. but but the the patent office technically falls under their jurisdiction. Well, kind of. They're actually in the executive branch. It's actually not in the patent office. I mean, that's a whole other bureaucratic. So Obama nightmare. could just sign a piece of paper tomorrow. And- so I don't actually know if Obama could. There'd be some arguing about sure. if you needed the. I guess you would need Congress. Anyway, you neither need the Supreme Court or Congress, not just Obama. Yeah. 
Um, I don't think it's the point is it's not I guess this illustrates the point it's not a simple question yeah but but I would go back to really quickly just highlight what what we are seeing from Congress and say what is good Um, there are a bunch of proposals I can talk about them but really I think the most important takeaway is that there's some bills that are comprehensive that have a bunch of different types of reform mostly litigation based remember at the outset I said the tolls uh, the trolls uh, most uh, important tool is how expensive patent litigation mm-hmm. is, how they use this to extort settlements. We're trying to level the playing field um, with regard to patent litigation, to take away the trolls' most powerful tool, to make it easier for people to fight back, to make it harder for patent trolls basically to be shady, and uh, to kind of get to a place where it's no longer a desirable business model. Um, and hopefully, hopefully, what we'll, We'll see some movement there. The good news is we've seen a lot of movement there. There are a lot of congressmen and senators who are coming out really strong in favor of reforms that we think would make the world a better place. Are, are, is the is the patent office itself becoming savvier? I mean, that was that was yeah. one of the big problems to yeah. begin with, right? Is that they they were granting these patents on technology, and that they, they still just are. Didn't understand. They still are granting a lot of crappy patents. Um, the patent office has gotten better, though. They're doing a good job at listening to different voices. They've started uh, talking to folks like us at EFF and other stakeholders more. So something we really worry about with the Patent Office is this idea of industry capture. The Patent Office, its mandate is to grant patents. So you have to remember that you're always going to mm-hmm. you know, butt heads at least somewhat based on that. But um, for a long time, what they were doing was talking to uh, really just people in the patent bar, people who get patents, people lawyers who prosecute patents, um, lawyers who litigate patents, but not talking to the third parties who are affected by patents. Um, and we like to, you know, I like to think that those are the kind of folks EFF really represents, the people who don't get patents but find themselves yeah. uh, stuck in the patent the system. People. Right, the, right, the people. Um, so the good news is the patent office has been way more proactive in talking to us. Um, this is still kind of a new thing, so... I don't know where it's going to end up. I don't know if they're just talking to us because they feel like they have to or if they're going to actually do something. I will point out that President Obama issued an executive action. I'm not sure if it's been signed into an official executive order, but President Obama has told the Patent Office that they need to have more resources for third parties. Um, Like, you know, what happens when you get a letter from a patent troll is a lot of times people have no idea what the hell it is, what any of it means. Um, And so... The president is insisting that the patent office have more teaching materials so that people can go to the website and understand what they're dealing with and understand the scope of their risks. Um, And that's a little step, but it's really important. Uh, Part of what patent trolls have benefited from is a serious asymmetry of information. And we're trying to solve for that. So, I mean, so it, it's, it could be something as simple as just having a website out there. That totally. That, and that's, uh, I guess that's what the EFF site yeah. is a little bit. And another thing we've recently been working on is called Trolling Effects. It's at trollingeffects.org. I'm going to give Brian an awesome sticker mm-hmm. before he leaves. <laughs> um, and what that site is supposed to is is a database of demand letters. We want encourage people to put demand letters they receive online. We'll redact their personal information if they don't want it up there. Um, and this is really important. But those are fully public domain. I mean, you can just put that information up once you get. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's no. If you're a recipient of a letter, you can do it. You sure. know. Um, so what we're let me give you a quick 
um, illustration why we think this type of site is so important. There's one patent troll I mentioned earlier who goes after people who use um, scanning to email technology, demanding about $1,000 per employee at your company if you mm. scan anything to email. Okay. Um, this, if you're just using, if you're using somebody else's technology to do yeah, that? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Right. This is what I'm telling yeah. you. Like, this is why yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it's absurd. Yeah. So, this company, MPHJ, random letters, started a bunch, or had a bunch of shell companies, also random letters, combinations of letters. Texas. So they're all in Texas <laughs> at some point or another. Yeah. Um, but this one, this one sent letters all over the country. Um, and what they would do is send these letters with like these really strange names that if you Google them, you wouldn't find any information. It would be like Googling a random bunch of letters. So what happens is you get a letter, you can't afford a patent lawyer, you don't know what the letter's all about, and you go to Google it to get some more information, yeah. and you don't really find out anything. I mean, I guess if you dig enough, you eventually can, but it wasn't until some people in the press started reporting on that problem. So... um this is, you know, we talk about the problem with the asymmetry of information. Mm-hmm. We think if recipients of those letters were able to find out that this company sent out thousands of letters and never actually sued anyone, they might feel more comfortable in just ignoring the letter. Yeah. Um, the flip side could be true. Maybe someone gets a letter from a patent troll who is notorious for suing all the time. That person might be way more likely to pay for a lawyer because they know they're facing mm-hmm. some real risk. We want to give people information. Information, you know, information is power, as they say. It's not trite. It's true. Um, that's what we're trying to do. The other thing that we think will happen if people submit this kind of information is that um, so much of the harm comes before there's an actual lawsuit. So much of it comes just letter writing campaigns, uh, license excuse me, licensing demands, et cetera, that stuff isn't publicly tracked anywhere. It's not public mm. data. So we're trying to shine a light on these practices, get more information to policymakers, um, hopefully get more information to academics so they can do whatever it is that academics do and write about it um, and help us <laughs> uh, understand the true scope of the problem. Um, it's, uh, we, we briefly touched on the the Eastern District of yeah. Texas thing, and I'm wondering if you've have you have you been to one of those shell companies? Have you have you because obviously it was yeah. kind of made famous by the This American the, Life. I've actually not been personally. Yeah. Um, uh, my colleague Daniel has litigated some cases Can down you there. Describe what what those are. Yeah. Um, so Eastern District of Texas is notorious for uh, being the place where many patent suits are filed, a lot of troll suits, and in order. For companies to get to bring their cases down there, they often have to have a presence down there. So they literally just rent offices in these office buildings and no one's there. And there's a sign on the door and it's empty hallways, you know, empty hallways of offices with no one in them. Trolls don't need a lot of employees anyway, obviously. Um, They're in the business of litigation and litigation only. Maybe licensing and litigation, I think that's the same thing. But, of course, the premise here is that they don't make anything. They don't sell anything. They don't really employ that many people. Um, so they go down to Texas. They have an empty office. And then they're allowed to bring these cases in what is arguably one of the most patent-friendly courts in the country. How how did that happen? How does that one, that one yeah. part of that one state – why is that the place everybody goes? There's actually a really interesting history. And I think there's a good, long, like, New Yorker piece sure. to be written about this that <laughs> – I haven't gotten around to, but my understanding is that something like 100 years ago, the Eastern District of Texas was really popular for um, what's called tort cases, Mm -hmm. you know, like a lot of, it's always been litigation heavy. Um, It's actually one of their major industries there. So it's like- Like a lot of people slipping outside of the Walmart? (laughs) Well, no, it's more like a lot of hotels with like 
for lawyers and nice restaurants for lawyers that come down there for months at a time to try these cases. Um, it's really a company town of litigation. Uh, and then there's... It, so they like appreciate the industry. It's almost, it's like, it's like lawsuit tourism. To- totally. That's well said. It's lawsuit tourism. It's in recent years, in recent ye- in the past year or so, um, it's become a little less so the case. There are other courts too. Delaware sees a ton of patent cases. Um but it'll always be, you know, and here's the other thing. When you talk about the Eastern District of Texas, we're not talking about like Dallas or Houston or Austin yeah. where it's easy to get to. We're talking about like Marshall, Texas. You have to yeah. like fly, drive. I mean, it's middle of nowhere. So if you are potentially facing a lawsuit, it's a serious added expense to have to deal with it in Marshall, Texas, as opposed to maybe in San Francisco or in Denver or in Boulder or in New York where your company actually is. That's a huge added expense. If you can't just deal with it in your backyard but you actually have to schlep all the way to marshall texas that's crazy so you go if you so, so if i were to visit marshall texas there'd just be like in in the middle of nowhere this just super swank hotel that's just- <laughs> i think it's more like my understanding is it's more like best westerns that have really nice tvs okay. you know <laughs> like done nicer because yeah. it's it's a lot of big firm lawyers okay so so we got we went way far afield yeah um, but what what is what what's the situation right now? Yeah, so the situation I don't with know the, with the podcast patent. Oh, so we just filed. Oh, the podcast patent. Yeah, I thought you were talking about Congress podcast patent. We filed our challenge last week, and mm-hmm. now we're waiting to hear from the patent office. And what 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 does that what does that mean? Yeah, for, so for hopefully, what's going to happen is the patent office is going to say, "Yeah, we think you make a good point. We think we need to investigate further." And then there's going to be a back and forth, and it'll probably take like a year with the patent holder and with us, like almost like litigation, us arguing that the patent shouldn't have been granted, the patent owner will argue that it should, and it'll be a whole protracted battle. How much of your time is spent with specific cases, and how how much time is just larger reform? Yeah, it's a good question, and it changes quite yeah. a bit. Um, I mean, obviously, like everybody's talking about the, the podcast thing right now, so that's yeah. your focus. Well, I don't know. I mean, we have, we have two lawyers here, and other staff, too, who does do a lot of work on you, the patent. You have the cool title. I do have the title. Yeah, the titles. Um, I sh- we didn't say it at the outset. No. It'll be on. It'll be on something. It'll be on something. The Mark Cuban share to eliminate stupid you patents. Just like saying that. You're I do. Really I do. How can I not smile? It's amazing. So anyway, um, you know, I it depends. Like right now, patent reform is hot in D.C. Like yeah. I can't believe I just said use the word patent and hot in the same sentence. Hot but in D.C. also just sounds and a it's, weird. It's, there's so much wrong with that yeah. statement. Um, but the truth is that right now there's a lot of movement toward patent yeah. reform in D.C. So I'm spending more time than I ever do um, working and thinking about that. Um, but it's still not quite half my time even. I mean, the stuff we do at EFF, I think, is um, there are a lot of people in D.C. who do D.C. stuff. Frankly, what we get to do at EFF is a lot more interesting mm-hmm. and it's a lot more exciting and it's a lot more... Um, I don't know. I mean, I don't want to trash what folks do out there. It's just a different world. What's it when when you're out in in DC and on the hill, as you say, yeah. working on this? What, what what's a day like for you? It's cra- it is actually insane. It's insane. First of all, what you don't realize is that the House side and the Senate side is really far apart, like um, physically. Yeah. Far so if from you have and you can't drive across, so if you've got meetings with, let's say, a Senate office and then a House office, particularly if you are in high heels, it is a giant pain in the ass. And you're like, I mean, you, I don't ever leave D.C. or I'm not like filthy with like blisters on my no. toes and exhausted. Um, but it's usually a whole bunch of meetings. I try not to do it that much. It's, it's not easy. Um, but it's talking to people. And, and I should say that 
I've done these trips to DC now for some time and the tenor has really changed. In the early days, I would get these meetings and I would say, there is a problem. This is, you know, people in the tech industry are really hurting. We need to fix it. And now I go and it's like, okay, how are we going to fix it? And that is a huge difference. We're talking about the next step forward, not convincing them that we need to take a next step forward. And that is a major, major distinction. Um, and it's it's great. It's good news. So so what what, what exactly is the the reform battle yeah. in DC for you? So what is the, like what are the specifics? Yeah, what, what you know what are, what are you actually doing out there? Yeah. So right now we're working pretty closely with uh, some different House and Senate offices who are actually drafting legislation, and we're trying to help understand what the contours need to look like in order to be effective. If that makes sense. Literally, when you start talking about legislation, you add or subtract a single word and it can change the whole meaning of the bill. Um, So now the fight in D.C. is largely about how to make sure that the bills actually have teeth, that they actually make the world better and aren't just senators saying, we fixed the problem and we don't think they really fixed it. Um, They call it sausage making for a reason. It's painful. It's ridiculous. And, you know, there's people on every single side of the debate and you know you just got to make a more compelling argument than the other guy we're, we're probably going to see this in the supreme court at some point in the not too distant future right i'm actually really glad you brought that up um because that's something else we've been spending a lot of time here working on and i'd just like to say we talked a lot about the dc stuff but that's really not the focus of what i do or what eff does um it's important i think We've thought long and hard about these issues. We know a lot about it. So when we get called in to provide advice, we do it. But that's not our bread and butter. But when you start talking about the Supreme Court, you know that is. Um, thinking about the law, how to implement the law, how the law that was probably written a really long time ago makes sense with modern technology, mm-hmm. that's what we do best. So um, there's this question about what you can and what you can't patent. Um, Section 101 of the Patent Act uh, talks about this. There have been a bunch of cases the recently. Patent Act. What, what, what is the Patent Act from? Um, so the 1950s was okay. the last big yeah. update. Um, but then they, well, they didn't. This There's a longstanding uh, uh, doctrine in the United States that you cannot patent uh, natural phenomenon, abstract ideas, and laws of nature. Okay. So number two is, that sounds like the big issue with this, right? Yeah, the abstract ideas. Yeah. I should put them in a different order. I should have let up. Okay. But but so natural phenomenon, no one really ever talks about that one. Laws of like nature. you can't patent the weather. Right. Great. <laughs> Thank you. So uh, laws of nature, though, those come up a lot. And they've come up recently in a couple really big Supreme Court cases, the breast cancer gene case. Huh. That was a law. Of, you can't patent laws so of nature. So human genome is probably, once they map that, is kind of open so, wide up, right? It it depends. Um, it depends on if you're talking about patenting the process by which you map, yeah. which is different than what you've mapped. You cannot yeah. process what you've mapped. That is a law of nature. Um, another case essentially had to do with um, testing certain levels of a drug in your blood. And you could, in theory, patent how you do the test. But they, in this case, they, they weren't doing it. The test was old news. It was nothing really novel or... Uh, new so you can't patent the, the other part this like 
checking if some how much drug is in your bloodstream. So there's been a lot of cases recently. The Supreme Court has been really active on this question. And every time the Supreme Court is active, the federal circuit, the court that deals with patent cases, uh, screws it up more and more for software. So we've recently, just with uh, this fall, asked the Supreme screws Court. Screws it up for the, the people making the patents or the people or just... Actually, for everyone. For the everyone. truth is it doesn't provide a lot of guidance yeah. for people getting patents, for people challenging patents, for the examiners giving patents. Um, you know, we we think the law is not in the right place, but I think everyone agrees that uh, the law is a total mess right now. It's yeah. super confusing. Many of the judges actually, many of the appellate judges on the federal circuit have essentially asked the Supreme Court, like, we need to, we need a, a rule. We need a, you know, a black and white rule of what we can and can't patent. Um, so I hate to, uh, you know, count my blessings <laughs> before... Um, or count my chickens, I should yeah. say, right? Count yeah. my chickens before they're hatched? Is yeah. that, yeah. Count my chickens before they're hatched, but it looks um, like there's a fairly decent chance the Supreme Court's going to take this question up. Um, we should know soon-ish, and that will be really, really interesting and something we'll be really excited about. Um, so, 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 so part of the problem is just that it's just this kind of patchwork of solutions, and that's why it's such a mess right now? Yeah, and... Courts have all said different things, and it's really hard to understand what all the cases mean together. And there's no, you know, it's like you can't patent something that just exists on a general purpose computer, but I have proof that it happens all the time. And, you know, let me tell you, actually, I think it's easier to explain this if I explain what one of the cases mm-hmm. is about. Sure. Um, this is the case that is one of my most favorite, absurd, ridiculous cases. It's about a patent for watching a video online before you get to see copyrighted content. Like seeing an ad on YouTube yeah. before you get to watch. A pre-roll, as yeah. we call them. As, yeah. yeah, good. Okay, now I know. Oh, now yeah. I, I learned something, a yeah. pre-roll. Okay. Just ask me. Just ask me when you have these questions, Julie. So it's this idea of watching this on the internet, yeah. right? And the courts, the the district court said, this is absurd, this is an abstract yeah. idea. It went back to the federal circuit. The federal circuit said, it's an abstract idea to watch an ad advertising is an abstract idea mm-hmm. but this patent puts it on the internet and that's hard even though mind you the patent doesn't explain how to put it on the internet it just essentially says on the internet um so we think it's not abstract the supreme court uh said that's incredibly pop- problematic especially when yes. it comes to the podcast stuff, correct right? yes it's problematic for everyone yeah. yeah so the supreme court said sent that case back to the federal circuit said try this again <laughs> Federal Circuit tried it again, came up with the same result. Yeah. Um, and now we've asked the Supreme Court again, say, this this is ridiculous. You know, taking an abstract idea, putting it online, it's still abstract. Yeah. And that's a really important proposition, particularly as more and more of our lives go online, right? Like everything we do is online. So you can't tell me something yeah. abstract. I mean... But, but that's what makes the podcast patent a patent, you know, because obviously... Um, delivering episodic content is something that that precedes the internet but now that it's on the internet now that it has that context it's not an abstract concept anymore well that's an absurd proposition right i think so and so do i (laughs) i mean think for a second um well right i mean I, i i yeah it's just it's absurd i can't even i can't even like give you i would say this i would say i might feel differently though i 
to play devil's advocate just for a second i might feel differently if there was a really specific new way of delivering a podcast that no one had ever thought of or a really specific way of displaying that ad but then here's the thing you could only stop people from doing it that specific way sure right now the way these patents are written which is the way it should be right now the way these patents are written the guy who owns the podcasting patent thinks it can stop anyone who's podcasting period full stop no matter what technology they're using to do it um the people who own this advertising patent think they can stop anyone on the internet from showing an ad before a video no matter which way they're doing it and the reason why they're doing that is because there's nothing specific that they own that people actually want to use correct you know in terms of the delivery method there's 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 no specific innovative delivery method nothing so they're just working from from an abstract concept and because it's so broad their patent is written so broadly um, and because they own this legal patent, they can assert it like that. So unless Congress and the courts actually tighten up these standards, um, what these people are doing, while I think it's really shady, is not illegal. So how do like how do we, you know, as we as we say in the business, how do we how do we how do we future proof this? I mean, so so it seems to me that the problem is in a lot of cases and this is just the 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 law in general but we're going off of these really old concepts and trying yeah. to apply them to new concepts um i keep thinking i keep thinking of um these ideas of like kosher law to get yeah. back to the, the to the the jewy thing from from before um <laughs> you know about like you can't uh you can't drive a car because you're completing something you're completing a circuit right. so just so just trying to uh apply these really ancient or not ancient, but yeah. old concepts to to uh, to new technologies, and and you know, is there ever going to be a way to to avoid that? Um, so that's a really good question. Um, in, in the context of patents, in particular, though, I think that that's a good question. You know, much more broadly than yeah. just patents, but I think we have a fundamental. Well, I think we have a lot of fundamental problems i think one fundamental problem with our patent system is that it's one size fits all it means we treat all technologies the same the kind of technologies you and i have mostly been talking about and frankly i think we mostly care about move really quickly product cycle is really really freaking fast technology Um, moves quickly technology moves so quickly and you know a lot of times the technology will be almost obsolete by the time the patent is even granted and then it has a 20-year shelf life you know so or almost 20-year shelf life. So what what we end up with is um, a world where we're kind of, you know, I'm constantly learning about patents that cover facsimile technology that are being used to target things online. Fax machines. Yeah, fax machines. Yeah. Fax machines. That's crazy. So um, all of which is to say that we have a system that's largely been developed to reflect the way pharmaceutical industries work, the way life science industries work. They have slower cycles. That they was, have slower that was cycles. The, the genesis of all of this? Um, pharmaceuticals? I wouldn't necessarily say the genesis so much as I would say they have really good lobbyists. Yeah, okay. They've got really good lobbyists who've created that's, a system. that's what put the system in place. Um, a lot of what is in the modern system. A lot of that's the why elements. I was, I, I was trying to, you know, because I've, I've heard you use the pharmaceutical yeah. technology before and that's why you keep coming back you, to that. Right, so they have a really strong lobby. So we have a system. And by the way, I think, you know, I don't need to go into the weeds about it now. I'm not trying to say that the patent system works great for pharmaceuticals yeah. either. There's a lot of really bad yeah, stuff yeah, out there yeah. with access to That's drugs. and uh, Yeah, it's podcast. a whole other thing, though. But um, if, if podcasts are still around. Yeah, if, if they haven't gotten a hold of us. But, um, you know, this all is to say that we've got a system that's largely been developed with totally different industries in mind, and it does yeah. not make sense for software. Um, and there are a bunch of reasons why 
people think that the systems, or I'm sorry, that the patent system needs to keep covering all these technologies um, consistently. But I believe that until we can break free of that, or until the Supreme Court does something really courageous, um, which I also would think is right, <laughs> um, then we've got we've got problems. I, I suspect a lot of it just comes down to, to resources, right? I mean, it seems, you know, I, would, would we possibly have the resource to put, uh, you know, a, a technology patent office in place or, or you know, a, a whole separate wing to just review these laws individually? Yeah, I mean, what I'm hoping, well, really, as a practical matter, what I'm hoping here is that Congress, the president, the FTC has also been involved. These kind of agencies of D.C., these creatures of D.C., will make a statement. We'll pass some legislation that will make the world better but won't solve all the problems, but we'll make a, a statement that there is a problem and we care about seeing it fixed. And then I hope that the Supreme Court can pick up the slack mm. and limit the scope of what you can and can't. This is, by the way, totally pie in the sky. If this all <laughs> happens, like, <laughs> I'm moving to Hawaii. <laughs> I'm done. But, you know, the Supreme Court will limit the scope of a lot of these really shitty patents yeah. and say doing what's essentially abstract either online or on a computer isn't that's not patentable like that's yeah. insane and you know maybe even go farther but i don't knock on wood um and and if we get to that place i think we'll have done the world a great service i think we will have gotten many of the worst patents and the worst actors out of the way so that you know young innovators young inventors the people who are really driving the economy and driving the technology marketplace and coming up with literally like world-changing ideas can just do that without having to worry about stupid patents. Hey everybody, it's Brian. I uh, wanted to let you know that we actually we pushed that interview up. We've, we've still got a lot of good interviews in the pipeline right now, uh, but that one seemed particularly relevant. Actually, the day that I visited the Electronic Frontier Foundation's office in San Francisco, they had just filed a formal challenge uh, against Personal Audio LLC. That's actually the company that's going around and suing some uh, some prominent podcasters. Um, if you listen to podcasts at all, you're probably familiar with this suit that was back in uh, January of this year. Um, they, they sued Adam Frolla, um, some, some TV networks, a lot of other people. Uh, so, you know, probably the first person you want to sue is somebody with a microphone and millions of people listening to your podcast uh you can uh, you can get more information on that and everything else that the eff is doing over at the website that's www.eff.org thank you so much to julie uh and, and her dog for for taking the time to to speak with us i know obviously they're they're very busy these days uh thanks to brian as always for for cutting this thing together thanks to mark and everybody else at boing boing for hosting the show uh, thanks, thanks you for listening. Uh, thanks you in advance for rating the show over on iTunes. You can do that. Uh, you can follow us on Tumblr. It's riylcast.tumblr.com. Send us an email, riylcast at uh, gmail.com. All sorts of fantastic interviews <laughs> lined up coming uh, at you guys soon. Uh, we spoke to Peter Bag. We, uh, we spoke to Paul Pope, uh, Travis Morrison of, uh, of the Dismemberment Plan, uh, RGD2, that's coming up. Um, lots and lots of stuff in the bag. Uh, we will be back next week. Hopefully, hopefully there still will be podcasts. It's hard to know these days. Uh, but if all goes according to plan, we'll be back next week with another episode of R.I.Y.L. R.I.Y.L.